Okay, so I'll... welcome to Sildur Shack, located at the edge of the Midgewater Marshes. We are a podcast for friends, a podcast for autists. We are a podcast for mystics and retards who are often the same people. Seated on 99 cent Best Buy easy chairs, we discuss issues present and remote, sacred and profane. And so night falls, and through the warm glow of candlelight, the stink of the swamp wafts up from under the floorboards. In a silver shack, we can be comfy. More like the stink of your Indianness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hello, uh, listeners. I'm Nice Meme Friar, and with me is Sterilin. And the two of us, we are the hosts. And yeah, yeah welcome and for some to... reason we're friends. And for some reason we are friends, yeah. So uh, welcome to the pilot episode of our new podcast, which is another Catholic Tolkien and other issues and subjects podcast, like another one of them. Yeah, but yeah, but this one's racist, so it's good. Oh yeah, so yeah, this one's this one's racist, so it's so it's gonna be good. Yeah, we're gonna reclaim Tolkien from people who aren't racist enough. Yes, exactly. Um, because because that's how the man was, and that's how we should remember him. Yeah. So. So. Our first topic. Who or what is a tweed dread? And why do we need to rescue Tolkien and GKC and C.S. Lewis? But I don't care about C.S. Lewis because he's very basic bitch. And yeah. why we need to rescue them from the tweet thread. Yeah. So, By GK, GKC, he means Chesterton for those of you who are, uh, uh, you know, yes. Philistines. Um, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. That's that's what they would have you believe, but his actual name is Gerald Chalmers. Like, Gerald Chalmers. You mean like Superintendent Chalmers? Hi, Lisa. Hi, Super Nintendo Chalmers. I'm learning. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, like that. So yeah, let's talk about tweed treads. Yeah. Um. So you're the one who coined the term tweed. Tweed trad, as far as I'm, I know. Uh, yeah, um, I had to. I had to come up with a descriptor to really to to classify um, the kind of people I had uh, that I have um, had to spend the past few years of my life around. Yeah. Um, so, how would you? Uh, Distill, so distill, if you would please, um, Terrillian, um, the key aspects of the tweed trad. A tweed trad is someone who considers themselves a trad, um, but their interest in tradition is primarily a matter of aesthetics, and they balk at um, the actual violence and extreme um political correctness and all that stuff that is actually intrinsic to the catholic tradition and traditional societies in general they're still <laughs> fundamentally liberals at heart 
um, but they're really, really drawn to the aesthetics, and they're drawn to perhaps many of the impl- many of the social norms and things like that. Yes, but they're completely um, unwilling to reckon with the violence and the systems that are actually required to enforce such norms. So, yes. one thing I would say is, you know, a, a tweed trad might be very, very drawn to, you know, cottage core, you know, very, very yeah. traditional clothing, yeah. um, things like, you know, organic communities and villages, organic, things organic like that. Organic communities and uh, local farm-grown food and, and homespun cotton handkerchiefs only. Because yeah. because because I have because I have dealt with that particular um, uh, exactly that issue. Yeah. Homespun cotton handkerchiefs only. Of course, um, of course, a lot of these things, especially <clears throat> organic communities, which is really a dog whistle, which is not so subtle, but um, it seems to be uh, subtle to themselves. Um, these things are basically implicitly white um they're implicitly exclusionary uh there's pretty much nothing in the universe more exclusionary um even violently so than a quote organic community and yet if you were to try to justify something like hardcore segregationist policies or race-based immigration policies or mass expulsions to such people they would absolutely balk at the prospect and you know, call you a racist, <clears throat> and they would try to fr- frame traditional society as uh, more as... inclusionary, and you know, somehow not That's racist, what... and things like that. You know, that they, they often have this very, very, very sanitized conception of the traditional past, which is often born from bad Catholic apologetics. You know, the kind of Catholic apologetics that says things like. Well, the reason the church forced the Jews to wear badges and said they couldn't come out at Holy Week was actually just for their own protection. It had nothing to do with, you know, preventing them from gaining power in society, you know, even though the Four Flattering Council explicitly says that uh, Jews are, are to wear badges and the like, and they're not to have any power in society. Um not to have any wield any kind of authority over Christians because of the way they abuse that authority. Um, but but you know what I mean, right? There is this yeah, tendency yeah. in, for example, Catholic historiography to sanitize the Catholic past and minimize our involvement in things like anti-Semitism. Well, you know? two of the well, two of the um, most popular um, Catholic historians, but they're you know actually closer to being. Um, pop apologists, really, um, pop history, uh, Catholic apologists. One of them is um, Thomas Woods, um, and his and his hugely famous book, how the um, how the Catholic Church created Western civilization. And the other guy, um, Rodney Stark, um, who again has a book. He's not on, even himself a Catholic. Yeah, is, but but he well, is popular among and. You know, among he's, Christian he's, he's certainly he's certainly popular amongst Christian apologists, um, and you will find them being published by the by the ISI Books, Acton Institute, and uh, Regnery Press, or is it how do you pronounce it, Regnery Press or Regnery Press? 
think it's Regnery. I, I don't know how it's spelled, so I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, a retard. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, so you'll find these uh, books, um, uh, Reg Regnery Press, and uh, there's also this uh, other guy who um, writes commentaries on Catholic economics, or what he supposes is Catholic economics, John Zemirak. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, um, no. That, so, that, that guy, yeah. That, 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 he is the quintessential neocon Catholic. Exactly. Um, Funny enough, he seems to be on the verge of apostasy every day. Yes, well, so does Steve Skojic, but neither of them, they're not willing to take the final step. There, There is a tendency among uh, not just Tweed trads, but also neocon Catholics, and there is a bit of an overlap there. Uh, to treat Catholicism as, you know, the true basis of universalism right. and yeah. uh, and things like liberalism and stuff like that. And I mean, there is truth to the idea that human dignity does find its truest grounding in yeah. Catholicism. Um, However, there is really a tendency to go too far in the other direction. And it you could you could actually um, look at. Um this guy called um, Larry Sedentop. So it's S-I-E-D-E-N-T-O-P. And his book, Inventing the Individual, I think that's what it's called. Um, he lays it down in, in a very, very thoroughly footnoted and referenced manner. Yeah. Um, how exactly the individual as 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 we as we recognize him today um would have been impossible to conceive of in a greek or a roman um, um cultural milieu yeah uh, and um there's there's actually so i guess i guess my point is what um people like John Zamirak and 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 the other couple of people we mentioned um, try to portray as normative uh, to Catholicism is actually not so. That's not actually the case. I mean, uh, to go back to the question of organic um, solidarity and um, and an organically constituted community, not only will you not hear tweet threads say anything at all about the racial constitution of that of that um, community but as soon as the topic comes up right as soon as you call them out on it they're going to shift their goalposts and start talking about cultural nationalism well what matters is is inculturation um and now that may be true on and i'm not going to say that may be true that is true on on an individual basis but um we if we if we try to apply that upon groups then the um then the situation begins to um differ um and quite drastically um, uh, an analogy I like to use in distinguishing between individuals and groups when it comes to, you know, the racial composition of communities is if I have a heap of wheat, right, yeah. and I put one one particle of barley in it, yeah. okay, it's still a heap of wheat. 
If I put 100 particles of barley in it, it's still pretty much a heap of wheat. If I put 100,000 particles of barley in it, it's no longer a heap of wheat. And you can't really draw the line anywhere precise. Yeah. You yes. just kind of have to make... Yes. You just kind of have to set an arbitrary point. But yeah. um, I think that, you know, we can sort of segue from this into talking a bit about the Shire. Because it, yeah. it's an organic community that's often pointed to, you know, yes. as an ideal yes. by so-called tweed trads. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. the funny thing is, is that the Shire is um, both more based than these people realize, but it's also a lot worse than a lot of people realize. It's, it's, it's actually, it, it's actually substantially worse than a lot of people realize. Um, can I start with the good part? Oh yeah. Yeah. Please, please go on. Yeah. So the good part is, is, you know, if you read the first chapter of the Lord of the Rings, a long expected party, the hobbits are very xenophobic and very insular. You know, these are not people who would tolerate mass migration, at least not internally. <laughs> they oh, wouldn't yeah. tolerate foreigners. They don't even like people from, you know, Buckland, which is another don't... Hobbit settlement just across the Brandywine River. They think they're weirdos just don't because like them, they're in simple boats. As. And, you know, what... mm -hmm. didn't didn't um didn't um um Samwise Gamgee's father um say something pretty similar to that? Just don't, don't like them simple as. I don't think it was the gaffer. I think it was someone else they were talking to at the Green Dragon. Okay. But I but I might be mistaken. But anyway, they think the Bucklanders are weird. And they're just hobbits who live on the opposite side of the Brandywine River. And yeah. who aren't even long separated from them. Yeah. Uh, they definitely don't like the so-called big folk or humans. Yeah. And... You know, like I said, they're often xenophobic towards one another. And this parallels, you know, a medieval and pre-modern phenomenon. You know, a common talking point among, you know, tweed trads and among, you know, you could also just say trad cucks is yeah, this trad idea. Cuck, yeah. Trad cuck yeah. is, is like a broader term you might use. Yes. Um, is, you know, nationalism is, is a modern phenomenon. Before that, uh you you didn't have nationalism and stuff like that and it's like well what do you think existed before that local communities were the source of people's identity yeah. and so the previous um, social order was even more exclusionary than I mean, than the I mean, nationalist social order so 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 the way i see it is um is now Suppose a village of, let's say, about 300 people, right? Mm -hmm. Culturally, racially, economically, they're going to have um, points of overlap, right? Mm -hmm. That are far more numerous than, let's say, five villages of that side in a 20-mile radius would, right? Yes. So what I'm getting at, at is as you increase the radius of of the of the of your um of your unit of a nation, if if you will, of your 
unit of an ethnos, the lower and lower does the lowest common denominator of identity fall. Yes. Right? So, yes. so in a nation as large as as large and as varied as India, let's say. Yeah. A Bengali, a a middle class Bengali um, family has almost nothing in common in organic terms with let's say a um a, a middle class um, Tamil family. Yet uh, yet this Bengali family is instructed by the constitution of India to regard that Tamil family as as its um brethren but these people not only do they live like 1500 miles apart from each other but their lines their families have been endogamous for the past two two thousand three thousand years yeah so sure they may look alike from a distance but yeah, they look alike in the same way that bengal tigers all look alike to someone who isn't a bengal tiger or you know any animal, right? Yeah. But from up close to anyone who is Indian, a Tamil and a Bengali look extremely different, I'm sure. Exactly. I yeah. mean even I even even I even I as someone, you know, who is from a fairly cosmopolitan city or and you know, is just generally observant to people's facial features, can almost instantly tell the difference between uh someone from West Bengal and someone from Tamil Nadu, you know, in yeah. India and the like. But um, going back to, you know, um, the greater exclusivity of the pre-modern world, you had things like the imperial free cities in Germany, mm -hmm. which, you know, the uh, various urban corporations throughout Europe were also very similar. But they had restrictive immigration policies when it came to other Germans, you know, they very wouldn't bring it. They wouldn't bring in people who could burden them. And even the people that they did bring in, and they'd bring them in as laborers, because, you know, cities at the time were population sinks due to high levels of disease. So mm -hmm. they needed to replenish themselves with laborers from the countryside. Um, those people would never be citizens, pretty much. Right. Citizenship yeah. and political participation was restricted to those who descended from the founders of the city. Can you can you give one or two concrete examples? Um, you would find that pretty much in um, every in like major city uh, in the empire. Like it was just okay. you know whether it be Frankfurt or um, Lübeck or whatever. You know you would have mm -hmm. um, a founding stock who mono who tended to monopolize most of the. Um, political participation uh, mm -hmm. to some extent um, you know some cities were more uh, political participation was more a matter of guild membership mm -hmm. and this might be more open or closed depending on the city because sometimes you just needed um, yeah. fresh people due to the fact yeah. that cities were population sinks at the time um, yeah. to you know join the guild and become a guild master and the like. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's really, really funny because tweed trads will often talk about, oh, how great, you know, guilds were, right? Yes. Well, guilds were highly exclusive organizations. <laughs> yeah. Um... You know, they monopolized their particular trade to an extent. 
Um, it, it is kind of exaggerated and um, uh, true. But then, but then, membership in the guild itself, you would have to prove yourself by yeah. um, over a decade of constant loyal service. Um, and yes. and I'm sure it was pretty much the same in the um, Gwaith Imirdain, right? You mean the Jewel Smiths Guild of a region? Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in uh, Middle Earth, yeah, in yeah. the Second Age. Yeah. Under Celebrimbor. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, it's just even Tolkien fans probably don't know the specific term, uh, Gwaith Imirdain. But yes, yeah. um, basically, you had a very, very exclusive corporate social order. And it's just really, really, really funny um, to see certain trad cucks and tweed trads, you know, t take on the trappings mm -hmm. of this ancient social order and balk at things like racism and nationalism and immigration restriction. Meanwhile, these institutions were far, 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 far more exclusive. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically people were racist towards people from other cities. Look, 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 look. Um... It takes a special kind of retard, okay? It takes a special kind of blinkered, wide anused imbecile to not notice this very same pattern in, say, football and um, soccer for our um, North American friends. Um, in soccer clubs, I mean, if, if you are even remotely familiar with association football, you, will, you are going to see how Chelsea fans will fucking fight Arsenal fans just because they come from another city. Um, this is this is this this is seen all the time in sports all over the world, all over the world. They just hate them, but the hatred is not exactly serious, except when it is. But it's not exactly serious just because of their just because of the accident really of their birth that that uh, the fact that they come from uh noida instead of uh Gurgaon, this um whatever i and i'm just gonna you know make one final remark about um you know modernity and like um the pre-modern world with regards to this before going back to the shire um mm -hmm. A talking point you hear these days, um, at least after the George Floyd riots from, you know, left calves who there's significant overlap between left left calves and uh, tweed trads and trad cucks. Um, a lot of them talked about how, well, police didn't exist before the modern world. They're a product of modernity. And it's like, yeah, but before that, what you had were incredibly tight-knit communities that policed themselves because they knew everyone, and they would carefully vet any newcomers uh, and prevent them from coming in. What... Literally, literally to see this in action, try living for a month in a, in a, in a township in any Indian city. Yeah, try dealing with all the busybodies who are basically going to be spying on you and uh, pointing the finger when anything goes wrong. Um, the reason police forces emerged, at least in, for example, the case of London, was because you started having um, mass migration from the countryside, and it was going um, out of control. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only not only uh, mass migration, but one of the um, 
attendant um, um, so, social changes, which is a relatively high turnover of the population that prevented um, um, uh, multi-generational solidarities from, from forming. Yes. Because, um, because you only see the police force emerging in what the um, the middle of the the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, um, but... Starting in the early nineteenth uh, century, late eighteenth century, depending on where. But basically, you have mass migration from the countryside and increasing labor mobility um, from parish to parish. Before that, you had constabularies, which only had authority in their local parish, but that was fine because people lived in very, very tight-knit communities. And to skip mm -hmm. parishes was basically like losing your identification card. You were um, leaving the group of people who knew you and could vouch for your political yeah, rights yeah, and defend exactly. you. And you were basically making yourself a kind of outlaw writ small. Um, Whereas later on, with the need for greater labor mobility of the rise of industry and the increasing migration from the countryside, yeah. skipping parishes becomes necessary. And the old system of policing people from very localized constabularies was no longer possible. Mm -hmm. And so the you had the establishment of a centralized police force to basically deal with um, uh, the need for, you know, something with authority a more overarching authority and all-encompassing authority yeah so that's why and so yeah. it, it's it, always it, funny when people appeal to the past you know to criticize things like racism and and you know police forces and, and stuff like that and i'm just wondering to myself yeah i don't think leftists want to be part of highly exclusive exclusive social orders that um militantly police entry uh within their boundaries <laughs> Well, unless, unless, unless they are the ones who are who are deciding whether or not to admit those people. Well, to them, it's fine if you know if black people do it. Yeah, um, and um, well, let's not let's not forget the um, the collective we um, saw in Seattle uh, that collapsed pretty quick, quickly. But yeah, um, it's it's. it's they want free zones, but they are willing to either let their favored minorities do it, or they want to farm it out to um, to 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 people who actually can't, who actually have the um, physical and which, uh, mental strength. Which definitely um, segues back into the Shire, and um, so... just just um, mm -hmm. just one last point of clarification. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking about um, leftoids, I'm not talking about our um, lizard masters who are who reign in the in the um, in the world's um, chanceries. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, the the tattooed four eleven ninety pound woman whom you will meet in your uh, local organic shop that is like, what I'm talking more about. like 390 pounds um <laughs> yeah, okay but, yeah my point being that those who are actually in power and those who are actually in league with melkor morgoth they are much more insidious and far far more malicious than 
uh, then these people who, who are just you know dumb foot soldiers they're dumb the... and charitably we can call them idealistic charitably we can we can call them idealistic but you know dumb covers that pretty well yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that brings us back to the shire um when it comes to the shire we know that they don't like outsiders and that they like excluding people and the like but we also know that they are largely incapable of defending themselves and that they are reliant on a master race of um six foot four yes that's how tall the average dunedain was uh-huh. in the third age uh six foot four blue-eyed black-haired hyperborean uh uh atlanteans Yes, the Rangers um, of the North. This was about three. That's, this was about three thousand years after, after the peak of their civilization, after the peak of the of the um, New and Orient civilization. Yeah, during which they were even taller and even more Hyperborean and even more yeah. Atlantean. Yeah. But the Rangers of the North, you know, are basically sacrificing their blood and sweat to keep places like Bree and the Shire alive. Uh, uh-huh. And it's the only reason they're able to be so complacent and uh, upset and unconcerned with what goes on in the outside world. You know, it's it's the only reason they're able to retreat from the world is because there are people yeah. who are, in effect, acting as their patrons. Yes, um, and and um, Aragorn says that in in in. The um, chapter on the um, prancing pony um, that um, that the a landlord Barleyman he lives within three days march from enemies who can freeze his heart with a thought, and the Dunedain labor unknown and unthanked just because the Brelanders and the um, Shire people, the Shire folk, can have their peace. Now, I do not know who would be willing to take up arms and patrol unceasingly in defense of um, a organic Catholic community. So. Yeah, yeah, these days it's, it's just ridiculous. You have people like who support things like the Benedict Option. And stuff yeah. like that, and you know, which is if you don't know that, that's a really, really terrible book by Roger Ayer, where he talks about how we should uh, establish our organic, these organic local Christian communities outside of, uh, like in rural areas, you know, outside the major cities and centers of power, and just retreat from the world, and and, mm. and we'll do just fine there. And it, it, it's just really, 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 really nice. funny because. Yeah. Because because council like this, it's it's completely, it's totally bereft of of any historical knowledge. I mean, um, since since um since a medieval history is your forte, Tyrion, you could you, you could probably express it better. But when Rome fell and and the and the monastic communities, right, um, during the um, uh, but well towards the end of the uh, migration period um 
set up shop essentially amidst the um, ruins of of Roman Europa. When Rome fell, there wasn't a super state, a global super state with superpowers that hated those monks as they hate us. So who's going to defend Rod Dreher's um, local cabbage farm? Because he can't make a fist because he is a limp-wristed, slack-jawed weakling, okay? Well, wide I mean... Of, wide of anus and loose of bowel. <laughs> well, look at what uh, look at what ended up happening in the 1960s to the right of freedom of association, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the United States government sent in the army, which at the time was overwhelmingly white, and America was still 90% white. It was still overwhelmingly Christian. But they were able to completely and utterly um, force desegregation on all sorts of communities. I mean, you could read even, you know, like more uh, including ethnic Catholic communities in the north Mm -hmm. and the like and just break them apart. Um, And there was resistance, but ultimately it just completely failed. Because because the the, um, thing is, it's what it's what BAP um, kept on kept on saying throughout the election fiasco uh, last year and uh, and prior to the enthronement of of that of of Bidan and Gamel Harris that um that the patriots they were not willing to do damage because they were good people and they did not and they did not want to see their country burn because in the 60s could a resistance not have been organized if 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 people had tried hard enough maybe but the fallout of that i don't think anyone wanted that i don't think anyone wanted that on their conscience so um martyrdom choosing martyrdom for for yourself is good but you can't force that on people who just want to live, and um, and when when the um, when the um, um, as as the um, as Bab says, uh, lesbian commissars with Martin Sheen face when they come for Rod Dreher's um, um, local tobacco shop and cabbage farm, who's going to stop him? Who's going to stop them? No one. No yeah. one's going to stop them. People like like a lot of these people who talk like like I mean look at St. Mary's, Kansas. What's going to happen when the government decide, which is the SSPX community that in Kansas, what's going to happen when the government says, "Hey, we're going to send a bunch of Somali refugees to your community and there's nothing you can do to stop it." Yeah. It's going to be pretty horrible. Now, I'm not saying that they are tweed treads. Um I'm sure that the SSPXers at St. Mary's are actually pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even them, I, I, I really, really suspect that they're going to have difficulty stopping it. I mean, our rulers hate us. Look, yeah. look at look at what uh, look look at what Obama did in Minnesota, where he sent countless Somali refugees to like the whitest communities in Minnesota and resettled them there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, going back to the Shire, 
you know, you see this desire to sort of retreat from the world among the hobbits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the world comes knocking. And when the rangers have to go south, Saruman, with very few of his own men and much diminished, is basically able to take them over completely um, and completely wreck a lot of their fancy traditional architecture, impose all sorts of arbitrary rules like some tattooed, uh, fat, human resources busybody. <laughs> Fatty Bulger. I, I mean, I mean that, that, that that's kind of funny because the way he rules the Shire is just so petty. Yeah. And yet, and, and so it rings so true. You could really see it like, like, like today, if Tolkien had written today, I can almost imagine that, you know, the humans would be complaining about racist hobbits instead of, you know, redistributing their wealth you know, which mm-hmm. was a bigger concern because communism was a bigger concern at the time. Not that Lord of the Rings is allegory by any means. It's not, but 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 the um, concerns of the author do make themselves felt. Yeah, um, I mean, today you could almost yeah. imagine, you know, complaints about racist hobbits. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, it is really, really funny to think. Mm-hmm. Um, what Saruman would be depicted as doing if it had been written, you know, by Tolkien today. Um, but, you know, a white pill that we do get here is that um, when the four hobbits, you know, Mary, Mary, Pippin, Frodo, and Sam do come back, you know, with advanced equipment, you know, the armor of the guards of the Citadel and, you know, Frodo well, having his mithril mis- mis- shirt. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not... Um advanced equipment per se it's just just a, they're changed in wisdom and stature yeah it's not, and yeah. bravery and, and you know they come back and they show a certain amount of you know guts and courage and yeah. just willingness to stand up to yeah. the arbitrary whims of you know the ruffians and the hobbits that were set up yeah. positions of authority they were able to re, uh, lead a pretty successful rebellion. Yeah, and so um, it, it was. I it don't. Was, it mm-hmm. was actually super successful. They and they, I think, killed most of the, like they killed about um, uh, like one hundred thirty-seven, I think, um, of the of the um, ruffians and big folk and bad hobbits um, at the yeah. at the Battle of Bywater. And it does suggest that with some degree of coordination and a bit of bravery and a willingness to, you know, lay down your life, uh, we might be able to stand up to the forces that be um, yeah. to some degree and resist them, you know. To some, uh, to some degree, yeah. yeah. And of course, the, the, there's another thing, right? I mean, after all, this is a Catholic channel. And we just do not know how God will um, cooperate with our willingness to cooperate with him and to do his will. So it could very well be that a show of force, that a, that a show of faith on our part, right, mm-hmm. will be met or will be rewarded by the weakening of, of the forces of you know the powers that be and and it could very well be our 
victory because 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 human history is replete with with forlorn hope charges that have resulted in dramatic victories for for the for the um forces you know that thoroughly out, outnumbered but they just did it anyway yeah just look at the norman conquest of sicily and and, and you'll see many 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 examples yeah. of this yeah but um you know uh, just just a little point there's something called mutual knowledge and that's where not only do i know something and you know something but i know that you know and you know that i know and you know that i know that you know mm-hmm. and so on and you know when there's widespread dissatisfaction with a regime and with a system that's in place as there probably was you know as there no doubt was in the shire um under saruman's rule um a few people showing bravery yeah and being willing to show that they're not going to tolerate what's being done to them can be enough to stir up other people to rebellion because it um you know it it'll create it'll create a kind of preference cascade where people who are a bit less brave yeah um yeah are are willing to start speaking up and doing something and then though yeah, and other is... people who are a bit less brave and eventually it reaches a critical mass where enough people are acting that other people are willing to act and they're no longer afraid that their action won't make a difference however um the people of the shire were still relatively good and unfortunately modern society is not quite as virtuous Mm-hmm. And so replicating that might be a bit more difficult because you have tons of people, you know, in modern America yeah. who really do want to eat soy and eat bugs and things like that. And yeah. even worse, you have a bunch of conservatives who are still of the belief that, you know, the written constitution, which the state doesn't obey anyway, is still some yeah. kind of suicide pact that they're bound to, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah this is this is it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me personally because um because it could be a cultural thing because um yes india has a written constitution but it's fucking huge no one reads it and no one generally cares anyway um, the united states is the only place where people really care about the written constitution to be honest other uh-huh. places have tried to make written constitutions, you know, to protect freedoms and the like, uh, on the American model, and it doesn't mm-hmm. really work. But that's probably because the American Constitution just wrote down what was already in the hearts of most uh, Anglo-Americans uh-huh. at the time of the Revolution. Uh-huh. Um, at least, you know, in its codification of certain rights. Although, you know, by writing it down, there is a tendency to then outsource it to pencil pushers and courts and people like that rather than to communities with guns which is a more traditional way of enforcing the written constitution for example in france uh during the wars of religion when henry the fourth um you know was a when it became clear that he was going he was uh the rightful heir to the throne but he wasn't catholic at the time the french people uh who had the constitution written on their hearts, even though mm-hmm. it wasn't written on paper, um, spontaneously uh, came together to resist him en masse until he converted to Catholicism and he wasn't able to enforce any kind of decrees or engage in any kind of actions 
um, until that point. And that that that's a lot more powerful right there. Um, yeah. Than any kind of written constitution that you outsource to be um, whose defense you outsource to courts and to bureaucrats to like yeah. that, that. That's, you know, one of the issues of written constitutions is that if you if you if people believe in it strongly you don't need to write it down and if you write exactly. it down yeah. it probably means that people don't believe in it strongly um, joseph de maitre talks about this in, in his uh reactionary writings um, you should read the generative principle of political constitutions if you're interested in um See, re reactionary this, political philosophy See, this podcast can be a book club too yeah <laughs> but yeah so when it comes to the hyperborean atlanteans who yeah. were defending the shire um we've already established that no one is so generous as to just voluntarily uh mm -hmm. defend us that way and certainly there are no hyperborean atlanteans willing to do so there are there, there are some Aryans yet who live in North India, but a transportation might be a problem. There are Aryans who live in Northern India, but they are shrunken and corrupted compared to their great ancestors. I'm sorry to they are, your clans. They are they are um, black Numenorians, unfortunately, and yeah, and most of them are given over to the worship of you know quite literally what is effectively nothingness. So. Yeah, you know what? We should talk about Black Numenorians. Yeah. Because they're, you know, a very, very interesting part of Tolkien's um, Legendarium. Uh-huh. So should I just, like, define, like, oh, yeah, talk yeah, about the history yeah, of the yeah. Black Numenorians? Yeah. So the Black Numenorians, so, of course, Numenor was the island in the West gifted to the Edine, you know, those men who were faithful to the Valar um, uh, in the First Age. And mm -hmm. so throughout the Second Age... Um, they're given long lives um, on the island of Numenor. But many of them grow to resent their mortality and resent the Valar and resent the elves. Uh, and they start turning to darkness and to worship of Melkor and um, Melkor Morgoth. And, you know, they get into sorcery and into the dark arts and they start and they tend to colonize the extreme south of Middle-earth. And many of them would become uh, some of the greatest servants of Sauron, including mm -hmm. uh, the mouth of Sauron, his emissary, and also several of the um, three of the Nazgul were originally Numenorians. Three of them, yeah, yeah, so three the, of them. Uh, we don't we don't know if there were if there were black Numenorians, which is to say that they were the king's men, but they could have been the king's men, but they could have been recruited from Numenor proper. So, yeah. so yeah, so yeah. we don't exactly know we don't that. exactly know. But they live, but Black Numenorians tended to live in the south of Middle Earth, away from the light in the northwest, um, where you had the kingdom of Gilgalad and uh, other Numenorians who wanted to live closer to the elves who, yeah. you know, were who blessed were the by the Valar. Who were yeah. the Numenorian faithful, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that they often, they were the primary enemies of Gondor in the early Third Age. Um, when after after Sauron was defeated, um, but after the sack of Umbar, one of the sacks of Umbar. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, the uh, the bl uh, blood of the Black Numenorians was mostly spent, and they became mingled with uh, lesser men, which you can read about in On the Rings of Power in the Third Age in the Silmarillion. 
uh, yeah. which is the final portion of the Silmarillion. You know, I mean, I mean, it's funny because there are people who try to say like, I mean, there are accusations that Tolkien was a racist, right? And then there are accusations that there are people who try to defend against that and act like there's no racial themes whatsoever in Tolkien, and he completely repudiates it. But it's not true. I mean, the the Numenorean superiority is a fact. It's partially due to blood, and it's partially due to grace. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you know they've sort of mixed themselves out of existence is not considered well, well, a good um, thing. It's considered a profoundly sad thing, for the most part. Well, um, um, on the blood and grace part, I think the grace that was um, transmitted to the Eden uh, by by the Valar um, um, at the at the beginning of the Second Age that became uh, locked, as it were, that becomes sacralized in their blood. You know, much as much as uh, there's like plenty of examples in the Old Testament where you know entire lines are cursed. Now uh, there's 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 um not to not to um not to digress over much, but um, there is this constant. There's this constant refrain in Tolkien's work about the about the sacralization of things and of flesh, um, and um, and once you mingle right um, with with people who who do not share that uh, that um, blood that has been uplifted by grace, um, the amount of grace that is um the the totality of sacralized grace that is shared amongst the people is diluted it's it's denuded over time um faramir expresses it very clearly in in i think i think is is it on the um on the wind on the west or is it is probably is probably so it's either in uh, the window on the west or the forbidden pool um he, he says that that we the gondorians love um um the people of rohan but um but over time we have become more and more like them just as they have become um more and more like us which is to say that um the original nobility the wisdom that 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 had run in the blood of the Numenorians had become diluted and had become uh, they had essentially become men of the twilight, which is which is um, which is the expression that Faramir used. Um, yeah. So part of that was arguably a matter of necessity, just because of all the blood they spilt over the centuries. Yeah. Um, defending other people and defending their realms. I like to imagine, for example, that. Um, realms like Arnor were disproportionately dependent on their Numenorean population uh, to function, yeah. and as they spilt their blood, it just became harder and harder to maintain, and that's probably why Angmar, despite being fairly small, was able to outmaneuver them and, yeah. and more or less destroy them in the Third Age. Yeah. Just because they didn't have that many Numenoreans and they had a lot of lesser men, and it was probably very, very difficult to exercise control over such a large area. Would you would you say, and this is and this is a speculative question, would you say that 
um, that the title of Aragorn as as Invinyata, the renewer, you say that by marrying once again into into a line of of elven royalty, because 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 um, yes. Uh, yes, you say that um, by marrying Arwen, um, Aragorn gave at least spiritually a significant proportion of his nobility to the to the people of the re, of, of the reunited kingdom yeah and i mean i mean it's 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 pretty clear that that kind of invigorated their blood tolkien talks about and for example note notes on motives in the silmarillion how a lot of the tragedies of the first age um allowed the mingling of certain strains of elven blood with human blood which greatly ennobled and uplifted them and um aragorn marrying arwen is sort of a renewal of that you know it it, it yeah. adds a certain strength to the royal line that creates a promise that uh the reunited kingdom will uh prosper at least for a time yeah uh, uh and be invigorated and that aragorn's own kingly status is not going to be diluted uh, yeah uh, in Eldarion, his son. Yeah. With Arwen. How long do you think Eldarion lived for? We don't know. Um, it's not specified. We know that Aragorn lived about 220 years. Um, not bad. It's really hard to say with Eldarion. Um, yeah, I'm going to look this up. M maybe we do know. Ah uh, no, we don't. We don't. We don't know. I have uh, looked it up several times. We don't know how long he lived. Uh, there's, you know, the internet, as Bab says, is uh, is rife with speculation. But oh no no just... no um, so it seems he died in uh, the fourth age, two hundred and twenty, according to one of in letter three thirty eight. Okay. Um, so eh. we don't know exactly when he was born. It's not canon. Well, it was one of, in one of his letters. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make it canon. That doesn't make it canon, but it does suggest that he probably lived about two hundred or some two hundred and something years. That's too little. He lived a long time. I mean, keep in mind that um, Numenorians were lowering uh, their life expectancy had lowered tremendously um yeah. by the time of the end of the third age not only because of mingling with lesser men but just because of you know entropy you know there's a general theme in lord of the rings that the world is becoming less magical um uh -huh. as time goes on and uh you know magic is fading uh, we can we, we can talk about that uh now um, yeah yeah we can because it because it ties into uh, both um, the uh, notes on motives in the Silmarillion as well as in the Atrabeth. Yes, yeah. So a major theme in Tolkien's work, um, and really most fantasy and mythology, is entropy. Things are a lot more magical and crazy and wild, and people lived a lot longer and were a lot taller and a lot more chad in the past, and things are much more mundane boring and bleak in the present um 
And this applies to, most notably in Tolkien's Legendarium, this applies to the elves. Mm -hmm. There is the idea that elves, although they don't die, they gradually fade over time, unless they go into the Undying Lands in the West. Yeah. And, you know, one of the tragedies of the destruction of the One Ring is that it meant that the three elven rings, which um, helped to prevent that fading, by creating, you know, little pockets of, you might say, little pockets of extremely low entropy, yeah. low chaos and high order, you know, in places like Rivendell and Lothlorien, um, helped more reverse so, that fading. More so in Lothlorien. More so in Lothlorien. Are we sure, though, that it's more so in Lothlorien? Because, uh, I mean... Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I base that on, um, on the observation um um in in it's, i fuck i can't remember the chapter but it's probably a, it's farewell to lorian uh no not um it's likely the one before that's probably um the mirror of galadriel um where um it says that proto felt that um in rivendell um there was memory preserved of the elder days but um in Lorien, the elder days were right they mm -hmm. were actually real so yeah of so course, uh, of course this could be um since since um vilia is is stated to be the most powerful of the um three elven rings this could very well be um a reflection of the fact that galadriel um my lady Galadriel um, had seen the light of the two trees and therefore far greater in intellectual and spiritual stature than Elrond, who was... Yeah. Who was, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is explicitly said, I believe, in the Silmarillion, or at least in um, Unfinished Tales, that Galadriel was the second, uh, perhaps the second mightiest elf of all time after her uncle Feanor. Mm -hmm. At least in certain respects. Yeah. I mean, she was extremely powerful, and so uh, Nenya, Nenya might not have the same multiplier stat as Vilya, if you will, if you'll forgive me for reducing this to statistics. But yeah, she has a higher base stats, so yeah. <laughs> it goes hey. up higher. Hey, Galadriel. No, 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 no. It has to be like this. Hey, Kellyborn, what does the scouter say about her power level? It's over 9,000! Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like if she had taken the one ring, she would have turned all of Middle-earth into her wheat field, and everyone would be her beta orbiters and simps. And I mean, she even says, all shall love me in despair, which and is basically if, what people do with e-girls. And if that is not the refrain of the e-thought, then what is? Right. What is? <laughs> yeah, Noldorin, Noldorin women in Lembas fields because it wouldn't have been wheat exactly, right? It would have been Lembas. So... Well, well, Lembas is isn't Lembas made from wheat? It's just made from wheat that isn't collected with a sickle. They handpick it. Is it though? Yeah, I believe so. Oh well, <sighs> or maybe. It's... 
made of some kind of a special a melon wheat um crossbreed something i don't know dun, 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 dun. uh yeah it is made of its own plant you are correct oh yeah, there the corn itself was an enduring plant that needed but a little sunlight to ripen and could be sown at any season and then sprouted and grew swiftly. Yet it was prone to north winds while Morgoth dwelt there. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's very interesting. So yeah. maybe it's just really, 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 really special, magical super wheat. <laughs> super wheat. Yeah. 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 And this was... And... and um. Again, may our listeners forgive us for allowing this to come to to be on air. But um, yeah, the Lembus crops were sprinkled with Galadriel's bath water. That's what that's what made him special. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the water from the mirror, <laughs> which was essentially Galadriel's bath, because. <laughs> Hey, this Elephant is the, this girl is the, bath water. This is the number one Tolkien conspiracy theory. The mirror of Galadriel was actually Galadriel's bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So Galadriel, of course, you know, uh, basically magic, you know, is leaving the world at the end of Tolkien. It, 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 it actually makes for a profoundly sad story. Yeah. Um, you know how the with the destruction of the ring you you do have this you know fading of so much of the magic of the world and the free elven rings just become ordinary rings and um it's funny because when arwen died about 200 years after the end of the third age even though lothlorien had conquered uh dol guldur and drastically expanded by the time she went there it was completely abandoned uh she went there um where she gave up her immortality and well, died. Um, my reason for that being, well, my headcanon reason wasn't that the, then that it had, you know, faded per se. It was that I personally think that because the woodland realm had endured the longest without any magical aid whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the woodland our realm was endowed with a special uh, grace that allowed them to endure for far, far longer than any of the um, realms um, founded and maintained by the high elves who who had, you know, either come from the west or were descended from people who had um, come from the west. They built it on a surer foundation, you might say. Yes, um, and because it was populated mostly by um, by. Sylvan elves, yes, um, Sylvan elves and uh, Nandor. Um, then you know what I personally think happened was since since um since since um uh, the realm of uh, Lindon was still pretty large and pretty powerful, um, you know, toward, even in the end of the um third age, right? Mm-hmm. I think Celeborn went to live beyond um beyond the Shire um, with Kirdan and maybe he tried to speak with um, with um, the um, well with his uh, wife in the West um, using the um, scene stone on the under towers so 
Um, so then, because Celeborn had left Loth, Lothlorien, um, most of the um, Sylvan folk had either moved um, north and merged with the woodland realm, or they had fled, or they had moved west um, to join either Linden or um, Rivendell. That actually makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, although we are super autistic. Although yeah. I think well into the fourth age. Um, I, although I mean, it's it's not clear how powerful Linden was uh, in the late third era. We really just don't know. Yeah. Well, we know very I mean, little about the population of places like Linden and Rivendell and yeah. stuff like that. Tolkien kind of leaves that to your imagination, which I think is definitely good. Um, I mean, Tolkien was a very, very good and very meticulous world builder, but a lot of world building is about creating the impression of depth. Yeah. Um, and Tolkien was very, very, very good at that. He was very, very yeah. good at um, leaving a lot of space for the imagination because, you know, there's no way any human being can fill enough detail. I mean, there's more complexity in, you know, a small place like Wales or the Peloponnese than there is in the entirety of uh, Tolkien's legendarium. But he makes it in such a way that your mind can fill in blanks yeah. and supply complexity where it yeah. has not been created and that 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 that's a key to successful world building yeah uh, that's that's not something that a lot of people get which yeah. funnily enough which funnily enough um isaac asimov are we allowed to talk about asimov in this in this show keep it keep it brief uh okay. so so asimov left a lot of things unsaid in his foundation empire and robot universes that allowed that have allowed a later generation of authors to um to um to milk the ash the to milk the asimov um, cash cow some more so yeah <laughs> yeah, well, people are now going to be doing that with Tolkien with the Amazon series, which I will never watch. Ever. Asimov. Yeah. Fuck. Can I say? Can I say something super cursed? Yeah. Asimov milkers. Wow. Um. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, but yeah, um, do you think uh, do you think we can end here? Um, uh, yeah, this is this is this is um pretty good for first. We can talk. Episode, we can yeah. talk about notes on motives on the Silmarillion in the next. Episode. I, I think. I, I think. I think we should. Um, I think we should take up the issue of fading right mm -hmm. and and um and maybe talk about um you know we can see how that applies to our own um primary world by um by talking about um uh, that one super awesome book um the fallen hypertime um which you recommended to me a couple years ago. Thanks, thanks for that, by the way. Um, and um, it's by it's by it's by Hud Hudson, 
the book is called The Fall and Hypertime. It's published by Oxford, I think, came out in 2011, probably. Was it uh, good? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was, it was actually pretty good. Yeah, he's he's more defensive than we would uh, like him to be, but that's that's you have to you have to have that um, in in an academic work. You can't just you know say whatever you want, but that's that's mostly because of the paradigm maintenance thing that goes on all the time yeah. in academia. Um, so um, next week we are trying to um, keep it on a more or less weekly basis but you know since it's our show we can do whatever we want um, but I'm trying to do to um, do well we are trying to keep it on a weekly basis and so next week we we can talk about um notes of motives in the Silmarillion and um, and the fallen hyper time and we can then maybe use uh, what's that What's that guy's name? Uh, yeah, Juan Donoso Cortez, and see how um, fading and reconstitution of the world can be um, can be can be um, seen in 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 the um, well well in it, it, our it, world really. If we could just end on a funny thought. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Wouldn't it be funny if the Shire existed in our world and? Instead of like Ruby Ridge, you had a shooting at Michael Del uh, Michael Delving, or a shooting at like yeah. Bag End. Yeah, like, the... those, those extremist hobbits need to be cut down to size. Yeah. Okay, so so okay, so the headline would go something like this, right? Um, the tour extremists. Take the Mikkel Delving Matham House hostage on an open museum day, and they shoot fifty hobbits and hobbit children. Recorded in the year of Shire Reckoning, fourteen eighty-eight, SR. Oh my gosh! Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, goodbye, everyone. Yeah. yeah, bye. Thanks for thanks for listening. Okay, so are you stopping recording now? Yeah.